that's a part of worship that kind of gets glossed over a lot of times in, in different places where it's just kind of praise and then you hear a message and maybe you take an offering and nobody actually says like, hey, you sinned. You got some business to do with God. Let's do the business. Because when we hide our sin and we pretend that I don't sin, you don't sin, nobody sins, we forget the beautiful gift that we have in Jesus Christ. He's not just a nice guy who like taught us how to live. He actually died so that we can be made right with God. And what an important thing it is in worship to take time and say, boy, we blow it. And it draws us back into love again to think, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a good thing that is. Good thing. So I want to give you a heads up on where we're going. Today, the sermon, in case you didn't know, is about sex. And next week, the sermon's going to be about hell. <laughs> so, just so you know. And, uh, and after that, it's spring break. So, <laughs> yes. Don't think this series wasn't artfully designed, my friends. <laughs> so that's, that's where we're going. It's all what if it's true. It's the questions that you submitted. Um, we're looking at what if it's true that sex was designed for marriage between a husband and wife. Next week, what if it's true there's a hell. Um, and so I uh, can't answer all the sex questions in one sermon. Sorry. We'd be here for about six to eight hours. Um, but we're going to be looking at some of them today. So just so you know, that's, that's where we're going. So the important thing you need to take away from this is less than two weeks to spring break. That's the really, <laughs> that's the real takeaway. Uh, that's what him hits in my star, too. All right. Uh, a couple of announcements. This week's Student Senate is starting a, um, uh, what would you call it? Shall we call it a campaign? Let's call it a campaign called We Are Calvin. And their desire is that you take pictures of things that are iconic to Colin, right, Colin? Things that, this is Colin's baby. Shout out to Colin, student senate. Um, that, that you think, this is a really, I love this part about Calvin, and you take a picture and you put it on Instagram or Twitter. You can even just do it on face to, Facebook and do the hashtag, even though hashtags don't work quite as well as on Facebook. They're figuring that out. And they want it to post to the student senate webpage if you link it to them. And, and hashtag we are Calvin. So things that are iconic that you really love about Calvin, it could be like, you know, grilled cheese Wednesdays, right? Like love grilled cheese, take a picture of the grilled cheese, Instagram, we are Calvin. It could be the late night um, eating of cookie dough that you're just like, why are my things food based right now? I don't know. <laughs> it's interesting. Um, you know, it, it could be worship, it could be dorm worship, it could be your Bible study, it could be class, it could be you in a lab, it could be you in a practice room, it could be you with your friends, it could be, I was gonna say ultimate frisbee, not so much um, snowman making. Um, but, but things that you think, this is really important, and then we're all gonna vote on that and say, yeah, I think this, this is really iconic to Calvin. This is, this is what, one of the things I love about Calvin too. So, uh, did I describe that well? Thanks. Um, and so look, there'll be announcements in student news, I believe, about this as well. Yes. And on the Cal you should all be friends with Calvin Senate, so let's friend them up afterwards. Um, and if you're not yet, you can be friends with me on Facebook, Pastor Mary, because I am friends with them already, and then we'll all be friends. <laughs> as it should be. Okay? So 
Um, so we are Calvin, and that's just for this week, right? So it's intense, it's short, it's focused. Um, things that you love about Calvin, hashtag we are Calvin, okay? Um, good. And then during the prayer tonight, um, I'm going to be praying for elections in Kenya that happen tomorrow. We have students from Kenya. We've had an interim that goes to Kenya regularly. Many of us have um, our hearts uh, are with Kenya. We're very aware that the stakes are high for this election. So we'll be praying for Kenya as one of the things in our prayer this morning, so just uh, this evening, just so that you know. And now we're going to take our offering for our community care fund. Again, so grateful that you continue to practice the muscle of generosity and uh, grateful that we have a community that cares enough about what students are going through to say, hey, I'll chip in a few bucks so that it makes another student's load a little lighter. So let's take our offering now for the Community Care Fund. humbled to be in the presence of your holiness. We're amazed that the God of the universe knows each of us by name and loves us. And more than that, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you impute your righteousness to us so that we are holy, not because we have what we have done, but because of what we've left undone, but because of what you have done. And so we worship you in spirit and in truth, humbled and amazed by the good gifts you give us. And it's so important to be reminded that our holiness is not dependent on what we do, because boy, do we blow it. Oh, we are greedy we gossip and we say things that just aren't kind. We say things that aren't true. We 
use Twitter and Facebook to make things all about us and our opinion and to be snarky at people and this isn't kingdom building activity. So thank you for forgiving us and for calling us to live lives of holiness and discipleship. Lord, tonight as we uh, think about your design for human sexuality, our hearts are to those who have experienced the brokenness of this in very profound ways. For people in our community who have suffered sexual abuse at the hands of someone else. For people we know who've been raped. For people in our community who have faced a hard choice and chosen to abort a child. For people in our community who feel that they are damaged goods because of the choices they have made around sex. For those in our community who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and wonder what all this has to do with them, what kind of life you're inviting them to live. Lord, we stand with these people today because they are us. So we don't approach the topic of sexuality through a lens of idealism, but through the lens of the holiness that is ours in Jesus Christ. So Lord, I ask as preacher today for wisdom beyond wisdom. You will speak through me and heal up the broken places, bind up the brokenhearted and heal their wounds. Lord, we pray for our extended Calvin community today. We are grateful for honesty and transparency around our financial situation. We are grateful that men and women of integrity are leading us through this. We are thankful most of all that this is your college. You own it, you love it. And we are doing these things for your glory and your honor. So Lord, if there are things that we need to lay down, there are things that we need to let go of so that we can pick up what you need us to pick up, then help us. As was said already in prayer, Lord, let us not ask you to bless what we're doing, but may we do what you're blessing. We pray for those in our community who are grieving and worried. We think of those who have lost loved ones, parents and grandparents. We think of those who are at bedsides, of parents who have had strokes, of people they know who have cancer, of siblings who have been in accidents. We thank you that we're in a community where professors are merciful and gentle toward people who are in sorrow. And we pray that you will open our eyes to be attentive to those that we know and love who may still be grieving something that happened a while ago. May we reach out in your love and your current concern to them. We pray for our city. We ask a blessing on those who are seeking to be peacemakers and reconcilers in Grand Rapids. We pray for violence to decrease. We pray for righteousness to increase. We pray a blessing on the state of Michigan and our governor as he makes choices. We pray for the city of Detroit. We pray for our president and our Congress and the choices that they make about how to spend money, how to compromise or not compromise. 
Lord, we ask that you give them wisdom and humility and the courage to do what's right for the country and not for their own election campaigns. And we pray for our world, particularly today, we lift up our brothers and sisters in Kenya as they face an election tomorrow. God, we pray that you already move your mighty angel armies to protect that country from violence and deceit, from corruption and decay. And instead, Lord, may men and women of integrity stand up and be voted into office. And may Kenya raise up leaders who will turn their country toward righteousness and peace and truth. We pray for the people of Syria remain deeply grieved and broken and lost. Many have fled their home, don't know when they'll be back. We hear wars and rumors of wars again. And Lord, we ask for your peace and your justice to rain down. Lord, help us not to despair of all these things, of the brokenness in the world. Let it not overwhelm us. Instead, we pray that each one of us, day by day, will do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with you. Because this is what you ask. You don't ask us to change the world overnight. You ask us to be faithful right now, today. And so that is what we ask for. And as we turn to your word, may it invite us into deeper faithfulness and holy discipleship. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people say, amen. Thank you. I sound good tonight, don't I? <clears throat> so one of the things that's thrown at Christians with some regularity is that we're hung up on sex. You hear this? You hear this from other people? Christians are just kind of hung up on the sex. They're worried too much about who's having sex with who and who shouldn't be having sex with anybody. And it can make us wonder as Christians, like, well, where do we get our ideas about sex? Where do we get our idea about a Christian sexual ethic? Where does that actually come from? And what does it look like? And what does it mean? And what implications does it actually have for our lives? So tonight we're going to look at a couple of passages of Scripture, which is a good place to go. You're looking for a Christian sexual ethic. And I invite you to begin at the very beginning, a very good place to start. We're looking at Genesis 1. Open your Bibles, would you, to Genesis 1. It's on page 1. So this is how it begins. Let's look at verse 27. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And so this is how it begins. God says to the human beings, Make more human beings. I think you two are great. Go have a whole bunch of kids. That's what he says. 
So the first image that we're given of human sexuality is that it has a procreative nature. That it, there's a baby-making aspect to human sexuality and that it is good. This is a good thing. Now, some of you know that there are two creation stories in Genesis. We have Genesis 1, which is the, more the poem of God said, and it was, and it was good. And then we have the next creation story, which is Genesis 2. So flip over the page. This is more of a story. Let's start down at verse 15 of chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you shall die. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone, I will make him a helper as his partner. Let's just pause right there. The Hebrew word that's translated here as helper is used throughout the Old Testament not just to refer to a husband and a wife, but it's actually used to refer to God. God is our helper and our strength an ever-present help and trouble, that idea. So the idea here isn't like a little buddy, you know, like a little junior helper. Like God says, oh, you need somebody who's like strong and competent and can actually help you out every now and then. So I'm going to make you a helper as your partner. All right, you got the language? So out of the ground, the Lord formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. Then the man said, ah, yes, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, Isha, Hebrew, for out of man, Ish, this one was taken. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and were not ashamed. So here's the second big function of human sexuality. That is its uniting factor, its unitive factor, the clinging factor, the cleave factor. Other translations say a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, and the two become one flesh. So here in the very beginning of it all, we have these two great images of human sexuality. One is the baby-making piece of human sexuality, and the other is the bonding piece of human sexuality, the procreative and the unitive. They're both right there at the very beginning, and it is good. There is not a sense in the very beginning, the founding of human sexuality, that it is something that is less than good, that it's something that is dirty and shouldn't be talked about, that it's something that's just like, well, you have to put up with it every now and then. That's not the idea at all. It's, and it was good, and it is very good, and therefore you cling to each other and you become one flesh. And this is the idea that goes through all of Christian scripture about sexuality, that it is a good thing. And in fact, 
The Jews were so excited about this aspect of human sexuality that they included in holy scripture a very sexy love poem. I've never heard a sermon on the Song of Songs you say, oh well, tonight's the night. <laughs> so turn with me, my friends. 543, the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon. So as you're turning, you can put your finger in there if you want. So the Song of Solomon is this beautiful, sexy love poem that is included in Holy Scripture. And I was reading this terrific commentator this, uh, this weekend, and he said, you know, people like to say, well, it's actually about God and Israel, or it's about Christ and the church. He's like, no, 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 no. It's about a husband and wife who really like each other. <laughs> That's what it's about. That's what the Song of Solomon is all about. And it celebrates the beauty of human sexuality. Read we'll verses two through four. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is perfume poured out. Therefore, the maidens love you. Draw me after you. Let us make haste. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. And the commentators say the way to think about the Song of Solomon is to imagine the marriage feast. And the way the marriage feast began was that the groom and his friends and his family would go to the town of his betrothed, and he would say, I've made your place ready, we're all ready, and they would bring her and her friends and her family back to the house that he had made. And then the groom and the bride would go into the bridal chamber, and the best man would stand outside the door. And everybody would be eating and drinking and having a whole bunch of fun. And then eventually, the bride and the groom would come out and be like, Oh, great! Hey, hey, wedding! Great! Yeah! More cake? Right? <laughs> so so the, the celebration of sexuality was both private and communal. Not public. <laughs> this is actually a very important thing to note especially in our world today, private and communal, not public. And so what you have here in the Song of Solomon is this wonderful celebration, and there are three main voices in the poem. One is the voice of the bride, one is the voice of the groom, and one is the voice of the bride's friends, a chorus. Those of you who study Greek poetry, woo! Okay. A couple of you, all right, there we are, my classics people, shout out. Those of you who study Greek poetry know that the voice of the chorus is often important. It often asks things, it often answers things. And so if we look at the voices, let's flip the page to chapter two. The bride says, verse 1, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. The groom says, verse 2, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among maidens. And the bride says this, as an apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Take that however you want, because that's <laughs> how she means it. 
He brought me to the banqueting house, and his intention toward me was love. Woo! Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. Oh, that his left hand were under my head, that his right hand embraced me. So there's this wonderful life. Wow, this is really great. And then she says this, verse 7. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the wild does, do not stir up or awaken love until it is ready. So here she is experiencing the intimacy of human sexuality, and at the same time, she's like, hey, heads up. You do not want to mess around with this until you're ready. Look at chapter 3, verse 4. There's this little like, oh, I couldn't find him. Where is he? Oh, no, I found him. <laughs> That's a summary. Verse, <laughs> verse 4. Scarcely had I passed them. When I found him whom my soul loves, I held him and would not let him go until I brought him into my mother's house, into the chamber of her that conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles of the wild does, do not stir up or awaken love until it is ready. So again, there's this expression of this is really great and a warning, don't do it until you're ready. It happens again in chapter 8, verse 3. Oh, that his left hand were under my head, that his right hand embrace me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up or awaken love until it is ready. <clears throat> and then, verse 6 and 7. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, passion fierce as the grave, its flashes are flashes of fire, a raging flame, many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If one offered for love all the wealth of one's house, it would be utterly scorned. Right? This is the kind of moment when your roommate comes back and is like, oh, it's so dreamy again, and you're like, bleh. Right? That's what's happening here, except everyone's at the wedding, so they're okay with it. But what happens right afterwards is that you get this line from the chorus that says, oh, wait, we get it. This is a little humorous, but we have a little sister and she has no breasts, referring to age. She's little. What should we do for our sister on the day she's spoken for? If she's a wall, we'll build upon her a battlement of silver. But if she's a door, we'll enclose her with boards of cedar. What are they saying? They're saying like, Oh, oh, we get what you're talking about here, that this, this is a significant issue, and we've got this young person, and we're going to do what we can to protect her. We're going to enclose her so that she is beautiful, but also that everybody knows that she's part of a team, that her sexuality belongs to us, and our sexuality belongs to her, and there's a communal aspect to it. And we are going to protect her so that when her time comes, she can flourish, bride, as you have talked about this flourishing. So what we see in Song of Songs is the beauty of unitive love. The beauty of love that is both private and communal. So, what does this have to do with particular sex practices? 
What does this teaching about sex as procreative and unitive have to do, for example, with oral sex? It's tempting for us to think of oral sex as not really sex because it doesn't deal at all with the procreative side. If you keep the parts in the right places, there are no babies that will be made. Is she really talking about this? Yes, she is. <laughs> and so it's tempting for us then to say that it's not really sex, it doesn't really count, who's ever counting, because it's not procreative. But I think we're missing out on something significant about the unitive nature of human sexuality. So I'd like to have eight people come forward. On <laughs> a sermon on sex? I don't think so. I need eight volunteers. Great. Mayor, you, you guys, you two, great. How many do we have? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One more. Peter, everybody take a piece of duct tape. All right, everybody got your piece of duct tape? Hold it out. I want you to stick it to someone else's duct tape and try to stick it to as many people as you can. Stick, unstick, stick, unstick, stick, unstick, go. That's plenty. That's all. <laughs> Come stand here, face, face your adoring fans, and hold up your duct tape as it is. <laughs> got it? Everybody got a strong image of this duct tape in your mind? Turn to show the people on the sides. Show the people on the sides. Great. Thank you. Let's thank our volunteers. You can be seated. You didn't want to keep it? <laughs> so the unitive aspect of human sexuality is like duct tape. It is designed to stick us to another person. In fact, there is a hormone that is released at the time of orgasm called oxytocin that bonds you to another, so much so that you may actually like the person after you have sex with the person more than you did before you had sex with the person. This hormone just kicks in at the time of orgasm and bonds you to the other person. It's as if we were created for that. <laughs> and when you detach orgasm from the true unitive in your head, you're like, well, this isn't actually doing anything for me because I'm just having an orgasm with this person. It's not procreative. We're not making babies. It's just an orgasm. There is still everything in you that moves toward the unitive function because that is how your body is designed to work. And so when you mess around with sexual stimulation with another person, you may feel very safe, like we're not making any babies. But this is what it can do to your soul. 
Because God wants us to attach deeply to people. He doesn't want us to attach like this and become crumpled up messes. So the unitive and procreative come into play whether we will them to or not. So let's talk about masturbation. Masturbation, again, procreation, done. But the unitive side, one philosopher points out that in masturbation, we're taking something that is designed to be given to another, and we're using it for our own satisfaction and joy. And if we repeatedly do that, and we get really good at stimulating ourselves, and we could even say, like, I'm just doing it now until I get married someday, which, by the way, you have no idea if you will or not. What does it do to a marriage if you have become so good at stimulating yourself that when your spouse can't do it the way you want, you have a disappointing sex life with your spouse? Or what if, when your spouse isn't available because he or she is sick or pregnant or gone, you just say, well, I can just take care of business by myself because this is really about me and my pleasure anyway. Now, let me be clear. Everybody masturbates, all right? If you're doing it every couple of months or so, shake it off, move on. Here's where we need to pay attention if you're using it regularly as a stress reliever, if you're using it at the end of a date because your date won't give you what you want, if you're using it to fall asleep, those are flags. If you're not sure if you've got a problem with it, see if you can go a month without it. And if the idea of going a month without it sounds impossible, try going for a week. And if you can't go for a week without it, it's time to get some help. You can come see us in Campus Ministries. You can go to the Bruning Counseling Center. Because we are like the big brothers and sisters in the Song of Solomon. That's who we are for you. We're the ones who come around and say, we are going to guard your sexuality. We are going to come in and cheer you on toward a holy life. This is what we do. And let me tell you, in campus ministry, we talk about sex a lot. A lot. All kinds, with all kinds of people who have all kinds of histories. You are not going to come into my office and tell me something that I have not heard. You are not alone. And the beautiful thing is that once you surrender this part of your life to the Lord and say, I need help, and you get help with it, you can actually get better. One of my students uh, and I were talking about this this week in a group, and he wrote me later to say, you know, I, I, we were talking about masturbation, and he said, I later talked about it with my housemates. He said, not an easy conversation, ha ha, that's what he wrote. But he said, one of them pointed out to me that when he started to masturbate less, he desired it less, and he felt much more free. And he said, as a person, this is my student writing, he said, as a person who knows the freedom that can come when you're not completely consumed 
by your sexual desire, he said, I think this is a really important part of your sermon on Sunday, to say that you can get better. The same thing applies to pornography. Pornography takes something that's supposed to be private and communal and makes it public. You don't know the people, you're not worried about their spiritual lives, you have no idea if they're committed to Jesus, that's not entering the equation when you're dialing it in. You're not worried about that when you're typing it up, calling it up on your phone, that is not what you're thinking about. I wonder if these people love Jesus. Not coming in your head. In that moment, you use other people's displays to again become all about you. And here too, if you can't go without it, you need help. And that help is available. And again, you're not alone. You're not alone. This is the invitation we're given to holy sexuality, unitive and procreative function. It's also tempting to think, you know, like, this is just a season in my life of being single and trying to manage these things because one day I'll be married and then I won't have to worry about sexual self-control at all. Eh. Thank you for playing. No. It's different when you're married because your spouse can actually say, I don't want to have sex with you tonight, dear, because I'm running a fever or I have to get up early or the kids just woke me up. And as one of my friends said, the hardest thing I've realized being married is it, it was like when you're engaged and you're like, wow, it's really hard to not have sex. It's much harder when you can have sex, when you're allowed to, and the person that you want to have sex with is like, yeah, really not tonight. He's like, that's much harder. I have another friend who says, I'm, when we got married, my husband thought we were going to have sex every night. And she says, here we are 18 years later, and he's just so disappointed. She says it playfully, but there's this, <laughs> there's, there's a reality to married sex where you have to practice sexual self-control because you are faithful to another, which means, as, as the vows say, forsaking all others, keeping yourself only to this person. And if we in our single lives don't have good practice of forsaking all others, whether the all others be pornography or masturbation or lusting after other people, if we don't have good practice in the sexual self-control muscle while we're single, what makes you think you're going to have good evidence and strength in the self-control muscle when you're married? There's also an assumption that you're going to get married and that you're going to be married forever. I'm going to be married at 24, and I'm going to be married until I die. Eh, maybe. Doubt it. The statistics are really high for people who get divorced, people who suffer uh, the loss of a spouse, people whose spouses have medical issues that mean they're not able to engage in physical intimacy the way they were before. And we need to be really honest about the fact that holy sexuality in singleness and in marriage takes self-control, takes discipline, takes focus. When I was at the University of Illinois and working on my PhD, I had this great spiritual director. She was a nun. She was about my age, so she was in her mid-30s. She was from Italy, so she had this really cool accent. And we both loved sports, and so we would talk about University of Illinois athletics, and they went to the Final Four that year, so it was really fun. And we talked about lots of things, lots of things having to do with uh, healing and bodies and sexuality and spirituality and Jesus, 
devotion. And I asked her about celibacy. I said, could you, like, I don't, Protestants, we're, we don't talk about this very well. We're really quite bad at it, actually. So um, what, how do you think about your celibacy? How do you think about your sexuality? And she said, well, because God hasn't called me into a relationship with another human being, because he's actually called me to dedicate my life to him and the church, she said, I don't have to just be focused on loving one person deeply and well. I get to love everybody. I get to love everybody. And she said, my sex life actually helps me love everyone. Um, what? <laughs> and so she gave me some great reading material to, th to think about this as a, as a single person, as somebody who uh, loved Jesus and the church. Um, I thought, what does this mean? What is this about? And so she gave me this great piece that was written by a young nun who was uh, talking about her own sexuality. And um, she said, what I've noticed is that uh, when my sex drive uh, goes up, and for women, it'll almost always go up during the time of ovulation so that you know, there's some predictability to it, but not always. And um, it's more complicated than that because women are complicated. Um, but she said, I can be really aware that when my sex drive goes up, that if I take it into myself, and uh, maybe I self-stimulate to the point of orgasm. She said, the result in me isn't satisfaction. Like, that feels better. She said, it almost always makes me feel more lonely. And she said, instead, she writes, if when I feel my sex drive coming up and there's a lust issue happening, um, she said, what, I, what I've learned to do instead is bring it back into my community and talk to my sisters about it. Say, hey, I need you to know I'm attracted to this person right now, I'm having these thoughts, or this is just what's happening within me. And she said, invariably, when I do that with it, it attaches me more deeply to God and more deeply to my community. And it's the difference between being naked and ashamed and hiding, because that's what comes next in that garden story we read, and being naked and unashamed and having a sex life that is both private and communal. One of the lies the enemy has told many of us is that you are the only one who does this. You shouldn't tell anybody else about it. It is incredibly embarrassing and you should be so ashamed. And what this young nun reminds us is that our sexuality belongs to the communion of saints. And this is a place where we can talk about the things that we're going through. We can talk about the things that matter. We have sex drives. We're designed to have sex drives. God wants our sex drives to attach us more deeply to each other and to him. For some of us, this will mean that our primary object of our sex drive is our spouse, like the duct tape, and we're going to be like stuck together, and we're going to do everything we can to stay stuck and be stuck and be happy. But for all of us, we have seasons when we're single. Some of us, it will be for a lifetime. Others of us, it'll be for a season. And that doesn't mean we're off the hook and taking our sex drives and moving them toward deeper attachment. 
And we do that by taking them, taking the conversation, taking words like masturbation and oral sex and premarital sex, and actually talking about them. Because we have a strong theology of incarnation. And we believe that what we do with our bodies matters. We're not Gnostics. We don't think the soul is more than the body. We're not like some hermit from the medieval time who thought that women were evil and sex was evil and you don't talk about it. No. We are the Song of Solomon people. We are the creation narrative people who say sex is good and beautiful and God wants me to have a sex life that attaches myself to other people and attaches myself to him and does not make me feel that I am naked and ashamed and I need to hide. It is Jesus who came as a babe in the manger who knows all about the human body, in particular the male human body. And it says in Scripture that no temptation has seized us. Nothing that we have been tempted to do is foreign to him. No temptation has come your way that Jesus says, I have no idea about that. He understands our temptations. He gets them. And in this season of Lent, we know that Jesus is a man of incredible self-discipline. Someone who gave his body for us. Someone who rose from the grave to forgive all of our sins. And there's this... <coughs> There's this false narrative in Christianity that says sexual sins are damaging more than other sins. And some of you may be thinking, I am damaged goods and no one will ever love me because of the things that are in my past. And I say to you in the name of Jesus Christ, that is untrue, that is false, that is a lie. Because your purity is not based on what you have done or not done with your genitals. But your purity is based on who you are in Jesus Christ. That's where your purity comes from. That's where your righteousness comes from. It never comes from anything you do or don't do. Thank the Lord. It comes from the Jesus who loves you and wants you to have a holy sex life, a holy sexuality that attaches you deeply to each other and deeply to him. And he doesn't want anything in your past to prevent you from attaching to him. We believe that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. Nothing you have done, nothing. And not who you are. Because Jesus has done all that needs to be done and you are forgiven. We are forgiven. And we're invited into better attachment than this world has any idea about. 
We are invited into intimacy and into attachment that glorifies God and connects us with other people, and that is beyond the imagination of anybody who's ever dreamed up anything about pornography. We are invited into something that is better and deeper and more true. So tonight, I have these bowls up here, and we invite you to come forward when you're ready and to place your hands in the bowls. And I want you to think about that little boy with the mom in the garden center. And God's coming to you like that mom, taking your hand, bringing you to the bowl and saying, oh, let's wash this off. Let's remember who you are. Let's remember that you're baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that your identity and your purity is found in Christ. So tonight, after I pray, I invite you to come and claim a life of holy sexuality, one that is dedicated to God, one that is lived out under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and one in which you are free to live as loving people. Will you pray with me? Our God, we give you praise and thanks today that nothing can separate us from the love that we have in you. Nothing. Nothing. And we pray tonight as we think about holy sexuality. It's going to look different for each one of us, and yet it's going to look the same and that we're all giving it over to you. So I ask, Holy Spirit, that you speak words of comfort to people who need to be comforted, words of challenge to those who need to be challenged, words of peace to those who are in turmoil. We pray for those of us who are in a season of singleness, and we don't know how long the season is or if it's for a lifetime or what you're asking of us, but we do want to have sexuality that binds us to you and to each other. So lead us into that. Lead us into deep attachment and intimacy that can be found only first in you and then in our friends and maybe in a spouse. And Lord, for those of us who are married, we pray that you guard our marriages, that you help us to be faithful and loving that you invite us day after day after day to lay ourselves down for the sake of the other. God, we thank you that you love our sexuality, that you love who you've created, and we pray for your blessing on us as we seek to live as your disciples. We pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.